Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Emma Chernyavsky, Chief Executive Officer of UNHCR in the UK. UNHCR is the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And as we go live today, Tomorrow, we're marking World Refugee Day on the 20th of June. So it's a particularly timely conversation that we're having with Emma, and we're going to be learning about the state of affairs of refugees and displaced persons across the world and what UNHCR is doing to address the issue, not only in the front lines, but also looking at things such as employability, building skills, being inclusive. So we have a wonderful conversation ahead of us. And without further ado, Emma, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much. Well, it's so good to see you again, to speak with you. And we don't have any time difference to overcome today, which is great. You're, you're here in the UK. I'm here in the UK. And tomorrow as we go live, it's World Refugee Day, uh, 20th of June. So I think let's start off with that. Uh, what's World Refugee Day? What are we marking? What's going on? Indeed. So World Refugee Day is a day for us to really celebrate what refugees have uh, brought to our countries, to our societies and to our communities. And I think um, at a time when uh, global numbers around displacement of refugees are accelerating and of course, We've just been uh, uh, reading last week about the the tragic um, sinking of the ship in the Mediterranean with hundreds um, of victims who have drowned. It can be very challenging to think about about the scale um, of of um, the refugee crisis around the world. But I think on World Refugee Day, it is really important to celebrate the courage, the resilience. Um, and the extraordinary contributions um, that refugees have made um, in our in our communities uh, for so many decades. And so you're the chief executive officer of UNHCR in the UK and UNHCR, United Nations High Commission for Refugees. That's correct. Otherwise known as the UN Refugee Agency, a little bit a little bit more clear. And um, so for the last 72 years, uh, UNHCR has uh, the legal mandate to uh, protect and assist refugees around the world. Um, this has um, morphed over time. Now, there are more internally displaced people around the world than there are refugees. But UNHCR is there um, on the ground working very closely with other uh, NGOs, with other um, aid organizations, with governments, with community groups, with implementing partners to support uh, displaced people and to support refugees with humanitarian assistance. So, um, you know, life-saving supplies um, in an emergency situation, um, and then also legal protection and, and assistance, particularly uh, aiming uh, towards vulnerable refugees who may have additional needs and vulnerabilities, and um, also uh, UNHCR now with many people displaced uh, for years and years, is uh, doing a lot of work around long-term solutions. And this is pointed towards education, um, uh, economic employment and inclusion of refugees in their host countries. On the um, 
on the world stage, we, we hear a lot about Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the disaster that's happening over there. Your plate isn't comprised exclusively of Ukraine. You have a great deal of other uh, disaster areas, let's call them. Uh, give us a little bit of, a, of an indication of what your world looks like in terms of the conflict areas uh, and, and the sort of dynamics that you're contending with. Absolutely. Um, as of uh, last week, as of the middle of June, um, UNHCR released the new Global Trends Report. And um, this shows that at the end of 2022, uh, there were 108 million people around the world who are either refugees, internally displaced, um, or stateless persons. And this is by far uh, the largest uh, number that um, we have ever seen. And it is also, sadly, the largest ever annual increase that we have seen, because at the end of last year, the number was about 90 million. So we're talking about an increase of nearly 19 million in one year. And this is obviously a, a, a shocking number. Um, Ukraine has played a, a major role in that. Um, there are now uh, 6 million people who uh, from Ukraine who have crossed borders into Europe and also been resettled in places like the UK and a further 5 million who are displaced within Ukraine itself. Um, but as you as you reference, there are many other places in the world where displacement um, is accelerating, and Sudan most recently has um, has turned into the newest and and most uh, urgent crisis for UNHCR, and we are on the ground there doing everything that we can to assist displaced people. There are people within Sudan, particularly in the Darfur region, and um, also fleeing out of, of Khartoum, where so much of the fighting is taking place. But also, uh, Sudan is uh, neighbored by, uh, I think it's six different countries. And in each of those countries, we are on the ground helping um, refugees who are arriving there. And as you can imagine, um, it is the, they're very, very challenging circumstances. It's, it's a part of the world where already there is a lot of poverty, a lot of deprivation. The climactic conditions are extremely difficult. And the local economies in countries like um, the Central African Republic or Chad don't have a lot of resilience or resources. And the majority of those Sudanese refugees have crossed into Egypt, but even there um, in Egypt, the capacity to um, to uh, look after and accommodate tens of thousands of refugee arrivals is is limited. And so UNHCR is there working again with other partners to uh, provide um, assistance and work hand in hand with government authorities to make sure that um, refugees are safe and registered and looked after. Mm. You mentioned they're working with other partners, and I'm curious about that. I'm always uh, a huge fan of, of collaboration. Uh, we've had David Miliband on the show of the IRC, uh, the International Rescue Committee. Uh, what what do these partnerships look like? So I think many people will, will know UNHCR, they'll recognize the letters and sort of have an idea of what you do. But give us a little bit of the behind the scenes look of what these partnerships look like, how they happen. Well, it, it's a very good question and and really needs looking at at, at, at different levels. Um, obviously, we work very closely with other UN agencies 
such as the World Food Program, such as UNICEF, we also often are um, uh, have as implementing partners uh, organizations like the IRC, um, which you mentioned. Um, I think the 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 element that might be of interest um, to your listeners is the really key role that community groups and local organizations play in um, the the work that UNHCR does. And so, for example, um, I was in Ukraine in January, so just uh, on the eve of the first anniversary of the war. And um, I went to Uzhgorod, uh, which is a city uh, in the far west of Ukraine, and uh, some 200,000 Ukrainians have now relocated to Uzhgorod sort of and region, roughly doubling the population of that area. And um, while I was there, I met with a number of the uh, community groups that are on the front lines of welcoming those internally displaced Ukrainians. And that takes the form of um, groups that are um, uh, repurposing existing kind of buildings to accommodate into housing to accommodate multi-generational uh, families and so for example I met um, a uh, an amazing uh, four generation Ukrainian family uh, great grandmother Ludmilla um, uh, her daughter um, uh, Liena who was in her 60s their um, son and then their uh, the two great granddaughters who were seven and nine and they were going to school on this site and the whole family, lived um, in an apartment in this um, in this community center. And it was really extraordinary to see how um, NAMIA, our local implementing partner there, was looking after the needs of these multiple generations. And so I think often when people think of the UN, they think, oh, someone who's you know, a, an international diplomat with a blue vest, you know, sort of going around with a helmet and the, the 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 you know the car and um, sort of coming in and out, but in fact, um, so much of the work that UNHCR does, and this was also the case, for example, in the Turkey Syria response, the response to the earthquake, is so much of what we do is really assist and and resource and work with um, the community groups on the ground who have the local networks um, and the the local um, staff and teams to be able to deliver the assistance and to be able to really understand and respond to the needs of the local populations. Amazing, amazing. Something else actually, if it's okay for me to mention um, in terms of partnerships is the growing role of private sector actors. And um, that is something that is happening in response to, again, the acceleration and and um, the growing numbers of, of displaced people and refugees that we're seeing around the world. And in Ukraine in particular, we saw a really interesting evolution that um, companies were not only uh, making incredibly general, generous donations, but a number of them were actually involved in helping us deliver elements of the humanitarian response. So thanks to an online uh, banking platform, for example, we were able to deliver cash assistance to Ukrainians, both in Ukraine and in the neighboring countries, very, very quickly because it was delivered with the assistance of an existing you know, technology 
uh, partner and their platform that was already active in those countries. And then um, we also um, had some help um, from Uber, which provided, you know, some drivers and um, some vehicles to help us with the delivery of the assistance and to, um, you know, uh, give rides to um, some of our kind of growing staff and partners in the area. So that's an example of how, you know, we... We, we partner and we want to do more um, with the private sector because when it comes to, you know, solutions, right, how do we tackle um, these growing needs, looking at inclusion of refugees and employment in particular is an area where many companies now um, are looking at how they can um, employ refugees directly, um, through you know their um, the, the the jobs that they offer, but also really investing in training and in helping upskill refugees um, in host countries, so that um, those refugees can be self reliant, can get onto the economic ladder, and really you know this is the long term you know future of, you know for we hope as many refugees as possible because clearly for, for refugees and displaced people being self-reliant and having, you know, that empowerment to look after your own family is so incredibly important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the fact that you're bringing up the private sector. And as you know, um, many people within the not-for-profit space are skeptical of the private sector and vice versa. The private sector, a lot of skepticism on the not-for-profit space, but the collaboration that actually is happening these days is, is huge. And I, I think you're right that you need that engagement of the private sector and even things like going to net zero, unless you have industry actors, you know, private sector actors uh, who can advise on what the roadmap should look like. Uh, it just becomes very difficult to achieve those things. I remember hosting Per Hegenes, who, who runs the, uh, the IKEA Foundation, and he was talking with a, with a big heart about the work that they're doing uh, helping refugees and displaced persons. And, um, and you mentioned employability more than once. You mentioned it just a, a, a second ago and then also uh, towards the start of, of our conversation. That employability piece, that skills piece, that self-reliance piece, what does that look like? Because I know that is of relevance in countries like the UK, where you're based, right? It's, 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 uh, it's not just what's happening in the front lines, as it were, in a conflict area, but what happens with, with uh, the refugees when they come to a host country like the UK? Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it's important to, to understand that uh, three quarters of, of the world's um, refugees, actually 76%, are hosted by um, low and middle income countries. And, um, of course, in, you know, in, in that context, the, the, the strength of those local economies, you know, varies enormously. And we have seen um, countries uh, often, you know, struggle to, um, to be able to really include refugees because they have limited resources. And of course, in some of these countries, there's um, quite a young population and um, issues around unemployment and um, just uh, uh, the, the kind of economic shock that can occur when you have a very you know, large and unexpected increase to your population. And that's why I think it's really important for countries like the UK, the US and other more um, developed economies 
to continue to support host countries in um, looking after refugee populations and, you know, investing in the types of, of initiatives um, that would really um, help educate young refugees, um, you know, uh, support, uh, you know, training and vocational programs and, um, you know, enabling that, you know, that employment and that, that, economy to be resilient and, and inclusive and um, but you're right here in the UK um, th there ha we have seen in response uh, to the war in Ukraine but also historically the UK public have been incredibly generous and compassionate for for refugees and again it is uh, World Refugee Day. This is World. This is Refugee Week in the UK, and I think it's incredibly important to celebrate and to thank the British people for for that compassion and that solidarity that they have shown. And um, I think this is something that gives me, uh, me and my colleagues, a, a, a lot of hope for the future. And I've, you know, spoken to. Um, countless uh, refugees who have come to the UK and um, having endured, you know, the, the grief of leaving their home unexpectedly, often leaving family behind, having sometimes a very difficult journey to reach the UK. And then when they arrive here, this it's the second part of the journey, which is coming to a country where you don't know anyone, where um, you may not speak the language, um, you don't have a community and, you know, those acts of kindness that um, we have seen uh, members of the public, uh, community groups, um, charities, there are so many um, wonderful charities um, that are working in the in the UK to help welcome um, refugees and to help them build a new home and a new future here in the UK. And I would just want to say a big thank you. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that because you wouldn't necessarily know that that's the case by reading the headlines. Uh, the headlines are, are, are not the most, um, uh, they don't make for the most pleasant reading, but indeed there, there is such a huge number of households here who have opened up their, their homes to, to refugees. I know before we clicked the record button, you were mentioning a specific initiative that you're, you're focused on uh, right now. Uh, that that is a way for for the the public to get involved as well, and I I'd love for you to share that uh, with our audience. So uh, we are asking um, uh, listeners and members of the public to um, participate in our campaign called the Gallery of the New Home, and um, we are asking people to uh, come to our website, which is uh, unrefugees.org.uk, and then forward slash home. And to share um, with us uh, a picture of what home means to you. And that could be anything. Um, it could be uh, an object. It could be a person. Um, it could be something, um, anything really that, that reminds you, that means home to you. And there you can also see the hundreds of other um, submissions that we've had from refugees and from members of the public. And I think, you know, this really uh, drives home for us this year, World Refugee Day is about ho hope away from home. And I think by sharing, both those of us who are lucky to not be refugees and not have had that traumatic experience of losing our home, and those who have to be able to share together that understanding of, of what home is. And, and I'll just say that 
the the object um, that I contributed um, is uh, I have a little stuffed owl, um, very originally called Owly, um, <laughs> and I've had him really for all of my life. And um, he, as such, has been a very nomadic owl because I've lived in in many different places. And I think because of that sort of disruption that I've had um, in all the places that I've been, um, Ali has always been that constant for me. And I think it's incredibly important, you know, I think for all of us, we understand um, what it is to have um, have an object and obviously have the family that we love around us to help us feel at home. And um, I think for many refugees, um, when they come to the UK, um, the the compassion and solidarity of the community and the people that they come into contact with and those acts of kindness can really help them rebuild their sense of home. Amazing. Excellent. Excellent. The public that you're dealing with, the, the, the UK public, because you're based here in the UK and you're, you're handling the, the UK, uh, what are the other ways that the public gets engaged uh, and, 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 and helps your, your mission? Of course, fundraising and and supporting the the charity um, with a donation so that we can um, support UNHCR in in all that they do for refugees um, is is very very critical and we've seen a uh, you know very generous response from the UK public from uh, partners ranging from you know companies to trust to foundations to philanthropists um, we also um, very much encourage uh, people to sort of sign up to be informed so again our website unrefugees.org.uk and you can come to our website and read some amazing stories about inspiring refugees who have made their home here in the UK and and um, you can watch some videos as well where they share their stories, you know, in the first hand. But there's, you know, lots of narratives there as well. And, you know, for me, um, you know, every day, this is why I leap out of bed and I feel so privileged um, to work um, with a team and to be able to come into contact with so many refugees whose courage and, and, and resilience and hope for the future is so incredibly inspiring. Lucky you, lucky you. It's a it's a, it's a serious topic that you're dealing with, but it's it must be very rewarding to be able to to play a, a valuable uh, role in that uh, in that mission. Well, thank you for allowing me to to share um, some of that that today, and uh, hopefully to to mobilize people to get involved. Absolutely, and tell me. So you mentioned you lived in many different countries. You have Auli, a familiar uh, memento. Uh, that keeps you grounded to some extent. How did you um, how did you get into into this space? How did you end up? Because you're not originally from the UK. I think most people would probably guess. Um, give us a little bit of, a, of an overview of your personal narrative. Well, I I grew up in a family where uh, my father worked uh, for the World Bank. So I I, I suppose from a young age, um, I I had the privilege of being exposed to. The, the sort of the power and influence of, um, you know, a, a multilateral international organization um, l like the UN. But actually, um, well, I, I spent part of my childhood in France and then in the US and uh, my parents are British, so it's all a bit mixed up. 
But as a career track, um, I really launched my career with Human Rights Watch. And it's, you know, was really the opportunity to advocate for for human rights, um, you know, for a more just, uh, a, a more equitable uh, world that really, you know, uh, drove me. And I think ever since then, um, you know, I've, I had a stint with the International Crisis Group as well. And they're an incredibly important organization, um, you know, building peace around the world, which is incredibly important, again, to resolving the global displacement and, and um, crisis, because the more conflict there is, the more people are forced to flee their homes due to that that war and that that conflict. So, um, and then I had a short time also with the Liberal Democrats, um, the political party here in the UK, um, and it was a very fascinating um, time period between 2014 and 2020 when there were three general elections and the Brexit referendum all happening in that in that um, in that time period and. Um, Yes, again, you know, this this was a party, is a party that very much stands for the values of internationalism and international engagement and support for refugees and human rights. And so that really spoke to me as well. Um, so that's the Excellent. very brief summary. And, and I just have to ask, what, what was it like working closely with Patty Ashdown? It, it was an, an extraordinary privilege. Um, Patty chaired uh, the 2015 uh, general election campaign. And so we worked together very closely um, for for about a year. And um, he, uh, he really taught me um, just um, the, the importance of of loyalty, um, of, um, you know, belief of, of working hard and of how to overcome failure, because actually the 2015 general election was an absolute disaster, you know, for the Liberal Democrats. And, you know, Patty is the chair of that campaign, um, knew that it was going to be a very difficult moment. And actually the way that he responded and reacted in the aftermath of that campaign and really showed so much leadership to help the party hold together in, you know, in the face of such a tremendous defeat. Um, that's a life lesson, you know, that I've carried forward now that I'm a leader myself is, you know, how to support your team when, you know, you, you fall down um, on the race day and, um Patty is is greatly missed um, as a political figure. He had a wonderful sense of humor. He was a very kind person and he greatly missed. Absolutely. Uh, tell me, so you've given us a little bit of an overview of where you were. What, what about uh, and how you got here? But what about uh, going down the line, a little bit farther down the line? What, what, what is it that you'd like to see that uh, you maybe quite haven't uh, achieved just yet, but that you'd love to uh, you'd love to lock down? Well, I think now that I'm in um, in the the refugee space, I just really would like to continue to 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 try to to make progress there as much as possible, and to see actually some some expansion of some new approaches that we are um, seeing in terms of developing those long term solutions. So the growing role of the private sector, the growing role of kind of innovative finance and different ways of financing those, you know, long-term solutions that are going to tackle climate change, that are going to, um, you know, uh, bring about more economic inclusion and, you know, scaling those up. Um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting things happening there. And in the next few years, if we're, if we're going to make a meaningful 
dent and and really you know start to lower the numbers of people who are globally displaced there has to be a holistic approach um, around climate change around peace building around you know development assistance and better economic resilience for the host countries um, and so really for me, you know, being at the nexus of that in, in whatever way that I can be um, and to really see us, you know, start to make some real, you know, progress and, and develop some sustainable solutions would be very exciting. Are you feeling optimistic? And, and, I, and, I, and I mentioned this, uh, bearing in mind that you told us about your new, you know, recently published uh, Global Trends Report that didn't make for, for great reading. Um, but yet we do see a lot more sort of multi-sectoral collaboration, engagement, holistic, as you, as you put it. So if we're reconciling these things on the balance, I mean, are you feeling optimistic that, that we not are only capable of, of tackling the, the challenge, but that we will tackle the challenge effectively? I, I am an optimist. And, um, well, I read an interesting uh, analysis recently of how uh, do you have to be an optimist to sort of make a career in the charity sector? And, you know, that's a, um, a rhetorical question, right? Um, but, but I think uh, very much so, uh, and, and I'm, I'm optimistic because of these innovations that we're seeing and these lessons that are being learned and these new approaches, but also because of the, the individual, you know, courage and, and the belief and the hope for the future that, you know, again, I've been privileged to, um, to to have shared with me from all the refugees that I've met, the colleagues, you know, people on the ground. And I think that, you know, we we have to have a belief in 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 progress and in in being able to do everything that we can to um, to improve and build better futures um, for those who have tragically lost their homes. I I love the uh, I love the positive energy. Uh, which is, I think, a must. Before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you for a key takeaway. What's that one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I think it's around um, challenging and changing the narrative about refugees. And so, um, you know, when you uh, see or hear, um, you know, in in your social media or in your conversations um, with people that you know, um, it's very important for us to, um, you know, tackle misinformation and to really try to um, build a, a positive narrative and, and really um, ensure that the refugee voice, you know, is, is at the heart of the media narrative um, and to, you know, combat those sometimes divisive, sometimes, you know, polarizing headlines or, um, you know, sort of political developments that can be very challenging. I think we've got to fight that with our, you know, positive stories and, and so kind of facts and figures um, to, to ensure that, you know, misinformation is, is tackled. Excellent. Excellent. Emma, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today, especially since it's World Refugee Day tomorrow. And so I know you're very busy with your schedule and I appreciate you coming in and, and shedding light on the work you're doing and the importance of, of having a positive attitude and looking at the numbers as well. It's not only the headlines and appreciating that there's a lot of great people doing a lot of great things for refugees. It's not all doom and gloom. So thank you uh, for joining us today. I, 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 it was wonderful seeing you again. Thank you very much for having me. 
Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great conversation with Emma Chernyavsky, Chief Executive Officer of UNHCR in the UK. That's the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. For information about this conversation and 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thoroughly enjoy producing today's show for you, especially since we're marking World Refugee Day this week. So thank you for joining us and I will catch you on Monday.